Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Ken. And I'm Tessa. This is our second season of How to Choose, and we've been exploring the topic of decision-making at work. And we've been doing that through interviewing a range of guests who reflect about decision-making in their work. Now, we've had a lot of diverse guests, but right now we're going through a bit of an education theme. What comes to mind when you think of a CEO, and how do you think they might get started? Well, look, I would say I think of someone who's driven, who is capable, and who is actually very busy. That's my answer to the first question. Your second question, I think, is a harder one. How do they get started? I wouldn't be sure. I wonder some of them might start with that real drive and vision to to lead, but I just wonder maybe some others discover that along the way. I'd be interested to to know. That's a good question. I, I think definitely both. Uh, today, you'll get one of those perspectives because yeah. we're talking to, <laughs> to Melody potts Rosevie, the CEO of Teach for Australia, which is a not-for-profit organization. We're going to hear how she went from a small town in the US where she was the first in her family to go to college to eventually founding an organization in a foreign country with the incredibly hard and worthy goal of ending education disadvantage. She's just as passionate today as she was when I met her more than a decade ago. You and I have both been teachers, so I'm very keen to hear your reflections at the end of this one. Awesome. Let's go. Today, we are talking to Melody Potts Rosevia, who is a Harvard Business School graduate, Order of Australia Medal recipient, and definitely most importantly, Mel, you're the CEO and the founder of Teach for Australia. That's right. Yep. And and full disclosure, I have to say that I am one of your first recruits. Um, I'm, I'm a cohort one Teach for Australia um, alumni, so I've definitely got a little bit of bias in this conversation. You're a beautiful, beautiful teacher and wonderful person, and um, I think the bias is uh, something you can control, um, but we were so lucky to have you in that trailblazing cohort, so thanks, Tess. Uh, now, I'm really excited to hear a bit about your origin story. I know it from from listening to you over the years, but I've never heard it sort of you know, the fulsome version. So I'm very excited to hear it today. Mm-hmm. You actually came to Australia to work at the Cape York Institute with Noel Pearson, didn't you, years, and, years ago? I did, yeah. That would have been, gosh, 2004, so 18-plus years ago now. Um, I was, as you can already tell from my accent, um, born and raised in rural North Carolina in Appalachia, and I had um, been kind of First in family to go to uni, uh, did my master's, or sorry, my undergraduate, um, and later my master's uh, in policy and and in economics, and then found my way to the Boston Consulting Group in the US. But it was through the big BCG diaspora um, and the fact that we had some Australians working in the office that I was based uh, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that I heard of Cape York and what was going on in Cape York with regards to communities wanting to have more, I guess, degrees of self-determination. And I thought, I'm really loving the problem solving of BCG and of a consultant's life, uh, but it's probably not quite filling my bucket in terms of purpose. And having grown up in a, in a small town was always looking for adventure and thought once I found Cape York on the map, uh, that that would be a pretty cool place to go. I realized it was where the rainforest met the reef, uh, and you know, lots to, lots to try and and learn and and appreciate 
both in the nature, but also in the culture. Um, so I came over and worked with Noel and others, um, notably across four Cape communities, as the community sought to define how they wanted their relationship with the then welfare sort of system to work. And in the sort of wee hours when I wasn't thinking about community consultations uh, and whatever else I could be doing to to support um, their vision, we talked a lot about education. And so there's kind of a roundabout way between Cape York and the work that I did over two years there and the the ultimate founding of Teach for Australia. So you would say the seeds for Teach for Australia were planted during that time? Yeah, I, I never, you know, founding stories are always kind of interesting. For for me, it wasn't a kind of strike of lightning, like, oh, I must do this. It was more, I think, successive plantings and waterings. Uh, I had had a really good friend of mine who was a year ahead of me at university. He and I both had the same scholarship uh, to university um, that provided for not only room and board and tuition, but actually some some pretty amazing enrichment. Um, he was also a, a fellow North Carolinian. And he had done the Teach for America program in the US and um, lived with me actually for a year whilst he was setting up um, his own school. It was a public school under a charter model under the um, KIPP uh, Knowledge is Power program, KIPP. And I was homesick and he came across to take a bit of leave. He never took leave. And um, he commented that in sharing with um, the Institute and others through a series of, of conversations, lunches, um, a seminar, he shared and made a comment, oh, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Teach for America. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Here's a good friend of mine who turned down an offer at PricewaterhouseCoopers, who, you know, was on a business track, clearly, but decided to do this other thing for a couple of years. And, and he's hooked. And now he's the principal. And now he's creating amazing outcomes for kids who are coming from some of the poorest performing middle schools in Georgia. And now, you know, and, and I just sort of started thinking, oh, you know, there's this kind of quite interesting connection. But it was no different than a whole bunch of individuals from Melbourne, Sydney, working for blue chip companies, also doing their own skilled volunteering up in community. What if they just went one step further and stayed for a bit longer? So that was the kind of original idea. But it was never just one thing. Um, it's easier to make it sound like that in, in retrospect. It was sort of something I think that had kind of been growing over time. I had done a really interesting achievement gap reduction project for an entire year with an urban school district in the US. Um, so some of these seeds had kind of been planted in a few different places. Yeah, I fell in love with Australia. I fell in love with Cape York. I fell in love with an Australian. And uh, here I still am. Uh, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe I should give this thing a go and see where it might lead. And the stars aligned um, politically uh, under the then Red Gillard government and the Brumby government in Victoria to take a bit of a punt and see what we could build. And um, the rest is history, which you recall very well from your uh, joining us in 2010. <sighs> Very, yeah, I recall it very vividly still. Um, but I think that's such a good point to make that a lot of people probably feel pressure, particularly our, you know, the people out there who might still be in high school, feeling like there's this, you know, you'll get to a point where you'll have an aha 
you know, the lightning will come down and you're like, this is my, this is my career. This is my passion. And mm-hmm. no, people don't have that. It's very unusual. And I think your story is much more, more common is you just do things that you're interested in, that you enjoy, and that you're good at. And gradually your path will lead you hopefully somewhere that is really fulfilling um, yeah. and where you can make a, a difference. I sort of joke, it's, it's not the bolt of lightning. It's more like the frog in the frying pan. <laughs> you know, if you just um, allow yourself to, to, to sit and simmer and, and, and be engaged in something, then other opportunities will emerge and pretty soon you're cooked. Possibly a slightly morbid analogy, but a, a little bit better than this all of a sudden, you know, there was an epiphany. Um, I'm, I, I'm sure that happens for some, but it, it certainly wasn't, wasn't mine. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, whatever that is, 18 years later. Teach for Australia is not just a teacher education model. It really does have that other eye on the big picture. So, leadership has always been a really key focus of, of the TFA model. You don't, you really actually have high expectations of your, you know, your cohorts. You don't think they're going to, not that being just a teacher isn't a wonderful, amazing thing in and of itself, but you do hope that people will go on to lead within education from out outside looking in as well. And I think that when you talk about um, potential for growth, that's really where, where the exponential can happen. Absolutely. I mean, you know, what's, so sad, and I see this now with a, a nine-year-old in year four. Um, is we just see how much impact a teacher can have most of the time for the good. And so, how can we ensure that more of our society? And I think COVID maybe drew the curtain back here a little bit. Um, you know, we we in Victoria and in, and in New South Wales in particular did a lot of homeschooling. And so I think pulling the curtain back on just how difficult teaching is, there is a lot of executive functioning required. Um, there's a lot of relationship skills involved. It's not the same as parenting. Uh, and, and maybe it's not always great to conflate those two things uh, in homeschooling, but parents saw just how big a job being a teacher is. For us, we've always equated teaching um, not only as something very noble to do, but actually as an act of leadership. So what is leadership? And I mean, you know, you probably have a whole other podcast on that. And I don't profess to be the expert. But I do think that leadership is about being able to imagine a different state, a different reality than where you currently are. I think it's about being able to walk alongside others, um, whether you're leading from the front, whether you're following, um, whether you're serving. I think there's a lot of different models, obviously, of leadership. But it's about being able to get there alongside others and make something new and beautiful from whatever uh, is currently in front of you. And so for me, teaching is an act of leadership. It always has been. Mrs. B, my son's teacher, is actively helping him to not only acquire math and literacy and other things, but to imagine a different world than what he saw and was possible when he started the school year. So it's a laboratory for leadership and that can then be applied in lots of other spheres, but it's really important to us that that we see it and recognize it and we coach it and develop it as such. What is your approach to decision-making more generally? Um, the first is I don't like to make, well, kind of as an oxymoron, a decision requires choice. So like what are the choice sets? Not too, not too few, but not too many. What are my values? Does it serve and what's the time, like the dimension of time? So it's like, what are the ingredients that I consider? What's the process that I go by? That was probably the harder one to answer. 
and then the action. Like I think so easy to overlook. Oh, you think you've taken a decision, but how do you actually then action it? Do you do it explicitly though? Do you actually sit down when you have something big to decide and go through that process or is that more intuitive? I would say I'm probably more intuitive, but I'm pretty analytical too. So, I mean, it kind of depends on how complex the decision is. If it's complex, I probably spend a little bit more time in intuition, even though there's bias in both systemic and intuitive. If if not, then I tend to be pretty like, you know, what's the ruler? Is it a financial decision? Is it an um, impact kind of decision? Like, do we place an associate here or not? Not that I'm making those decisions, but trying to kind of help people frame their own. But yeah, I would say it's probably more intuitive. Mm. But I was just I was just fascinated by your podcast and and sort of the how do you make better decisions by thinking about how you make decisions? So much of what we talk about, that's what it comes down to. Actually understanding what you've just said, what your values are, what drives you, what's important to you. Uh, because mm. some, another CEO could have a completely different, you know, maybe values don't come as, as high a rank or um, mm. having an impact or the purpose is not as important. I think if exercising leadership is also synonymous with taking decisions, then I think the question of, you know, sometimes the decision is not to take it, to delegate it, you know, to, to kind of give it, empower someone else to have it. That is a really good point because so much of good leadership is knowing when it's actually not your job to, to be doing the thinking and to actually delegate that down. Yeah. Love what you're doing and, and all, all the things that you're doing, no doubt. Um, but even yeah. just creating time to do this and, and spend time in podcast land and think about, think about thinking. That's pretty cool. You have such a clear sense of purpose now, Mel. Did you have a similar clear goal of what you wanted when you were younger? At uni, partly because I didn't have the social capital going in to really know how to think about these things. Um, I would have interviewed probably a hundred times in my senior year for jobs, like a hundred times. What kind of jobs for? Everything. I, I interviewed for jobs at airlines. I interviewed for banks. I interviewed for obviously consulting firms. Um, I interviewed for economic research positions. Like I just didn't, I really didn't know. And the only reason that I ended up going for consultancy was because it let me postpone the decision. It was like, oh, well, if I do this, it kind of feels like we keep all those doors open. I don't like, I don't like closing doors. That's another thing that I've realized about my decision-making. I'm not, I'm an optimizer. I don't particularly like saying no to things. So that was just a way to kick the can. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but then life happens and opportunities kind of come in. And so if you just keep yourself really open to them. But as I've gotten older, I realize you have to say no to things too. But in those early days, I was just very opportunistic. You were a hedge pruner, not a tree fella, which is oh. one of our previous episodes. Cool. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to that one. Then. Yeah. All right. Hedge pruner. Um, I'm very privileged. Like I, I, I grew up with loving loving parents, uh, supportive family. Um, we didn't have a lot, but, you know, I had some great teachers who made the difference. Like I, I found my way to uni and, and I made my way through pretty well, but it was also really hard. It was hard to know what to pick as a major. It was hard to fully understand the consequences of what I was picking, you know, because again, if your social capital networks are a bit small, then, then you don't kind of get the benefit of, of lots of other perspectives and um, the ability to kind of play a movie out. And so I think that's why I was also interviewing for so many different things because I was just trying to understand the world around me. Sometimes you don't know until the interview if you really want the job as well. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was visiting one of our schools a couple of weeks ago in Perth and one of the uh, teachers that I visited, who's a PhD, former CSIRO physicist, he was teaching math and we caught up afterwards. And I asked him about his story, you know, just tell me a little bit more about where your back background is and, and, and what you're wanting to achieve for your kids or, you know, work with your kids so for them to achieve. And he said, well, my background's quite similar to the school that I'm teaching in. And I went to uni and I had always really liked math. So I decided to major in math. And then I was chatting a couple months into someone and they said, oh, you should really think about doing engineering. And I had to ask, what's that? And that was sort of my own experience in a way. You know, the, again, the, the networks, the expansiveness of jobs and opportunities and of ways of being in the world. And it's not to say that, that there's a, an inherent deficit because there's a lot of other things that I really think are strengths that I've held for a really long time. And I'm sure this associate would agree um, that there's a lot that he can hold on to with pride about his background. But it's also undeniable that he had to ask engineering, what's that? Mm. And sure enough, he ended up, I think, doing a, a double in, in pure maths and in engineering. It goes a bit to the you can't be what you can't see. Like mm. if, if you've never met an engineer, you can mm. never have an aspiration to become one. Yeah, um, exactly. So looking at TFA's future, and I guess your future as well, do you, do you have a sense of TFA in 5, 10, 20 years and also your role? Will you get to a point where you want to hand over TFA to someone else's? Have you got something else on, on the horizon? I'm going to answer the last bit first, um, and, and that is, no, I really was quite genuine earlier when I said I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know what I want to do next. I, I am pretty open to kind of where's the next place that the skills that I've developed, um, similar to the ones that our, our teachers and alumni develop, um, you know, where can they be best uh, put to use for what would still be the same set of core values? You know, I want to leave the world slightly better and feel that I had a, a hand in, in doing that. For TFA, I mean, we're, we're quite clear on what our 2030 strategy is. So um, I can answer that one. Uh, we want to grow volumetrically, i.e. numbers. We want to grow in being true to our name, Teach for Australia. So continuing to expand into new geographies and into, and into primary so that we can have served millions of kids by 2030. We're currently sitting at having served um, by our best count around 450,000. And um, we're looking at how can we serve, you know, 2 million by 2030. Um, we have brought to date 1,300 people into the profession through the pathway that we run, and we want to see that more like 4,000 um, because, again, there's this compounding effect over time of who they are and what they end up doing and how many kids they can reach. So those are our headline ambitions. Uh, the vision stays the same. We want to see an Australia where education gives every child greater choice for their future. And our mission statement of we want to grow a community of leaders who are committed to educational equity. So those two things will be constant. Um, our commitment to growth will be unwavering. Growth with quality, um, but growth nonetheless. Yeah, that's that's what I see for TFA. For me, I'll, I'll need to transition at some point. I'm still pretty on fire for this work, but I'm also conscious of the founder's curse and um, I'm not indispensable. So it's going to be pretty important that. Um, 
yeah, the leadership keep its energy and its focus and and um, and its fire. And uh, I can see a, a world where sometime between now and then um, I hand over the reins and TFA just continues to, to grow and achieve. A very exciting future. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing you hit all those goals. Uh, by 2030. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Mel. It's been really, really lovely hearing hearing about your journey personally, but also Teach for Australia. It's 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 got come so far since since I I joined the mission in 20, 2010. Now, for any of our listeners who are interested in finding out either how to support the Teach for Australia mission or even to become an associate and actually go out there and become a teacher, how can they find out more? Pretty simple Google search. Just uh, teachforaustralia.org is our handle. Um, we're on all the various socials, just reach out to us and we're always up for a conversation. Wonderful. And if anyone listening would like a, you know, a, a personal experience, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions about what it was like going through the Teach for Australia program. Thanks Thank so you. much, Tessa. Thank you. Have a great day, Mel. Wow, Tessa. Yeah, look, too. I was really impressed with that. Listening to someone who heads up a not-for-profit organisation with such a fantastic goal of edu- of ending education disadvantage. Um, it's it's inspiring in itself. I think one thing that jumped out at me too is is listening to her describe how she was the first in her family to graduate university. And that for me is always inspiring to hear people who are trailblazers, who are willing to take pathways uh, that they haven't seen other people take. So that I think is really interesting because sometimes we ignore those pathways. If, if we haven't seen someone else do something, subconsciously, I think we eliminate that as an option. Um, personally, for me, I wasn't really daunted by the option of working overseas in a voluntary capacity because my parents had done that before. It seemed like something that was achievable. But I think um, there are certainly options that I would never have considered because I hadn't seen them, uh, people close to me doing them. And I think when it comes to making career decisions, it can greatly limit our options if we are not looking more broadly than our small social circles to to find um, things that we might be able to do. She was in such a tricky situation, Ken, because she didn't have a lot of those social networks that a lot of people do who go to those high-end universities. And I think that's why her 100 interviews made so much sense, because she was really trying to figure out what careers and professions there were uh, and where her skill sets could, could suit. I think that was a real example of perseverance uh, and openness to exploring lots of different avenues. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Look, 100 interviews is is huge. And that's, again, that willingness to, to say, look, I'm going to take the time to try, uh, you know, knock on a whole bunch of doors um, and explore and see what options are out there. Uh, it was It was very impressive. And I really like the idea of interviews as a way to help you make decisions. Personally, when I was applying for a public service graduate job, I only put in a few applications and the one that I ended up getting was actually the one that I knew the least about and was probably the least uh, excited for, if that makes sense, just because it was a bit of an unknown. But at the end of the two-day recruitment process, I was so keen to get that job because I had a sense of the culture. Uh, I talked to people who work there and they were so passionate. I was, you know, I would have been very sad if I hadn't have got the offer in the end. Yeah, that's re- that's interesting. I would suggest a takeaway from that for people who are kind of at that position yeah. of thinking, you know, what what job do I want? When you put in for interviews, when you're applying for, for jobs, think of that as an exploratory process. Don't just think of it as a 
competitive process. If you're thinking purely through the mindset of competition, then it's easy to forget about trying to find information as you go through the interview and the application. You're really just thinking, I just want to beat the other people and get the offer at the end. But if you're thinking, hey, look, I I want to explore this. Just because I've applied for it doesn't mean that I want the job necessarily. Um, And it might not mean that I'm a good fit for the job. So through the process of applying, you can find out more information. So I think that can be very helpful uh, as you're trying to work out what you want to do professionally. Look, I think another really interesting element, Tess, is that delegation is a decision, isn't it? You know, when you're in a managerial role, you inevitably have to delegate. You can't do everything. Uh, this is where micromanagers fall down. They, they often lack the willing or they're unwilling often to trust the people who work for them. And so they want to keep a real hands-on approach. Every task um, has to be carefully watched and monitored. But I think as you get into more senior roles, you have to become more and and more effective at delegating. You need to think about, okay, what am I going to let other people do? But not only that, um, you know, how do I give them some autonomy and freedom with the task that I'm giving them? Um, And I think a really interesting uh, example of this is given by Dr. Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think that's a book you're familiar with too, Tess. And Covey talks about delegation as one of those key habits. And people who can delegate well give broad guidance, they give support, but they don't try and micromanage. He tells a story of how he gives his young son a task of looking after the lawn. um, And he just said, look, I told him it had to be clean and green. I didn't tell him how exactly to get there. I just told him what he had to do. And And so if you want to read more about that story... Uh, I definitely recommend that book. It's a great management book, a little bit dated now, but still got tremendous wisdom in there. Yeah, I would echo the, that call to, to check it out. It's um, very available at secondhand bookstores too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on your point about delegating, Ken, I think it's really important every time you get promoted to really reflect on what level of decision-making comes with your new role. Because I remember when I, uh, you know, as a new manager, getting advice from one of my staff members to stop doing all of the chores for the section, you know, things like setting up call forwarding or booking rooms or just generally being really helpful because that's something that I just always done. Yeah. But she said that I needed to, you know, delegate more of these kind of duties or allow other people, you know, the opportunity to to, to volunteer for them rather than doing, doing all of these because it was taking me away from my core um, management responsibilities. And just to clarify, we, we're not saying that you then – say, look, I, I can't do that. I'm a manager. Um, it, it, I think you want to communicate that always clearly to communicate clearly to your staff that, hey, look, I'm willing to help out with anything. And and you can show that at times by jumping in and helping with tasks that maybe are menial and are a bit tedious, but really understanding that if you have, have been put in a managerial position, know what your key responsibilities are and uh, and stick to those. I think that's what your staff need from you. Um, so yeah, it's a really good point, Tess. Yeah, I think from her perspective, the balance was wrong for me. I was I was being too proactive in in doing a lot of those things rather than sharing them around. Look, I think a really important point to Tess that I took from this is that 
there is a doing something phase, if we can call it that, of decision making. So your decision isn't complete until you've acted. So I think we'd, that would be a really good thing for us to unpack in a future episode, but just a really simple analogy. If I make a decision that I want to um, you know, start a healthy diet, then and then I go away and just start eating a whole lot of crappy junk food, then I would really question, or you should really question me and say, Ken, did you really make a decision to do that? Because it doesn't look like anything's changed. So I think unless we have taken action, the decision isn't finished. So there's a point past the, okay, I'm going to choose to do this. Why would I do it? That seems like a good reason. Um, And then you pull the trigger and you get on and do it. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's kind of like the New Year's resolution version of decision making, isn't it? If you just have all these great intentions, but don't follow through, you're actually not, you're deciding to think about something, but you're not actually deciding to do it. Yeah, it's really just a wish list, isn't it? Rather than a decision. So yeah, excellent. Now, what what was your one key takeaway from this episode, Ken? Yeah, Tess, lots of great things to take away from that that uh, interview. I think the thing for me was really the the comments about leadership, and clearly Melody is uh, is a very capable leader who's got who's quite inspirational. But she said, for her, a key part of leadership is imagining a different reality from what you can see, and then making the decisions that will take others to that place. I thought that was a great way to define leadership. For me, it was the idea of decisions that enable more decisions. Yeah. Uh, so for Mel, it was the beginning of her career where she's like, okay, management consultancy will actually give me more options in the future. I don't have to commit right away to a certain path. Um, so I like that idea of when you make a decision, is it actually opening more doors or is it closing them? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because that requires you to think more than one step ahead. And sometimes that can be hard to do. You're just thinking about the immediate next, uh, res- you know, the immediate next step. And if I do this, then I'll get this. But if you, but a career really, I think ca- career planning really requires us to think steps ahead. So that's a very good point. I think I need to get a bit better at doing that. Thanks for joining us in today's episode. Stay tuned. Who are we listening to next week, Ken? So Tess, next week we're going to be chatting with someone who reached the pinnacle of a sport. Uh, We're going to talk with a squash player, former British Open champion. And if you know anything about squash, uh, the British Open is one of the big tournaments. He was the world number two. Uh, And we're going to talk with him about the decisions that he took to uh, pursue that uh, sporting career, um, the decisions that he then subsequently took to say, right, it's time to move on to something else, but also choices along the way that enabled him to be successful in that career. So that should be a very interesting discussion. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au and tell your friends about us. We'd love to meet them too. Bye for now. 